hello. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson, your gracious and grateful host. How's everybody doing today? Tonight, this morning, four o'clock in the morning. Hope you're doing well. This has been uh, a continuance of awesomeness. <laughs> I'm, I'm now at the point of doing two interviews a day sometimes. That's fun because my friend Michael E. Simpson and I started this about, I don't know, four months ago. So it's it's been so much unbelievable fun. And what's fun for me is that, again, I got to talk to really inspired people and what the passion looks like and what the muse looks like. And that's what's kind of part of this thing. And and then conversations go all kinds of crazy and wonderful places. It's, it's just an honor for me to be in this room with all these people. And so I was thinking about this, that I'm kind of, this is kind of my thing. This is kind of what I do sometimes when I'm like in a room, I can kind of just be this guy, I guess. So, and it's always kind of been my, I was in musical theater when I was 12. That's, that's, that's a kind of an embarrassing admission on podcast, I guess, but I was, and it was awesome. And uh, I had Capizios and leg warmers. Why a 14-year-old kid needed leg warmers? I have no idea. But it was in Flashdance. But I digress. It was this kind of culmination of this experience that I'm having. So I get to be a part of uh, these people's lives that I'm interviewing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this next guy that I did, Adam Glass. Oh, my goodness. So first of all, Another great person to talk to. I really enjoy just nice people, it seems. Uh, in, in addition to being just a nice person, Adam is a, uh, he's a creator of Netflix, uh, In From the Cold, the great spy thing that he had. Uh, he was a writer and an EP on Supernatural, big show there. Uh, the Chi, the Cold Case. But because I am a major dork, I noticed that he was a comic guy and he had done some issues for Teen Titans and I'm a big Teen Titans nerd. So we talked, Perhaps a uh, disproportionately large part of the show, just on the Titan, our Teen Titans alone. Who knows what's going to happen? But uh, as always, it was great. We talked about addiction, which is a big part of um, my story. And uh, yeah, it was great. As always, I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as I did making it. Take care. Hello, Inspired Minds audience. Uh, please welcome to the podcast the amazing and talented Mr. Adam Glass. Say hello, Adam. Hey, what's going on, Jeff? Thrilled to bits to be having this conversation with you. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a big fan of storytelling and uh, film and TV and music, actually, and uh, comics. So before I begin all of that, though, I want to ask one standard question that I always do, which is, what is the first thing that inspired you when you were a kid? What was it a book, comic person? Go. <laughs> yeah, it was probably comic books. You know, I was uh, grew up in the Bronx, you know, a single mom. And I think to keep me occupied, this is back when you would get comic books at a candy store. She would always get me these books. You know, they were, I think when I started out there, like 20, 25 cents a book. And I just fell in love, Batman, Spider-Man, you know, all those things. And I also had a neighbor named Eddie Pagan, who I always give a shout out to. And I, I joke that Eddie doesn't even know I exist, but he was a little older than me. And, you know, when you're a young kid, and you're trying to get the attention of an older boy in your building. 
he likes comics. So I used to like go sit up in his room, read all his comics and, and just talk to him about it. And I mean, that started early. I must've been four or five years old. So uh, comics were my first sort of like, you know, sort of segue into storytelling. And, you know, I remember dragging my, my bubby, my grandmother to take me when I was like 10 to a comic convention down in Manhattan. And back then it was literally just a bunch of long boxes and like a guy selling some shirts. And I think Marv Wolfman was signing, you know, and we waited in line to get Marv Wolfman and, you know, Jack Kirby and all those guys. Yes. And so like when I go to Comic-Con now, I'm just like so blown away. Cause I feel like I saw the birth of it all, but you know that, and then, you know, I grew up in, I was a kid in the seventies man a lot of great tv shows so you know grew up with welcome back carter and charlie's angels and dallas and you know all that stuff in movies you know like i was much more of a you know a lot of people star trek kids i remember the thing i think that sort of hit my switch was because i walked in with no idea what i was about to see was the first raiders of the lost ark and i was just like just blown away man that's different than any like that just ignited me so um yeah i always felt like i was more of a raiders kid than a star i mean i like star wars and you know but it was like that's the movie that i remember just like just blowing my mind oh it was legendary movie side note my i just remember this too my my weird thing to be favored about but that one uh that scene where he's uh trying to box with the big guy and the planes come you know swirling around and that splash of blood yeah (laughs) oh my god well, tell you, you know, it's so funny about blood splashes. I was, uh, you know, I worked on Supernatural. Sure. We got good at doing that. And I went to co-run a show called Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. And I had written into the script the sort of blood splash because, you know, it's when you don't have the money and special effects. And it's just, you know, I always believe the imagination of the audience is a lot worse than what could ever really happen. Right. So I remember we were on set and we just couldn't get the splash done right. And I was just like, oh, my God, this was so easy. So I remember calling up the, the special effect guys and the producers over at Supernatural. And they're like, yeah, we created a gun for that. They did it so much. They created like a blood splash gun, you know, and it was right. like, ah. That's what we needed to do. That's what we forgot. So. Yeah, <laughs> desperation is a mother of invention, or whatever that word is. That's uh, it, you know, it, we're gonna go all over the place. I got a feeling with this interview. <laughs> I want to get back to the comic thing for a heartbeat. So, when you were reading comics at four in like preschool, what were you yeah. reading? What kind of which which ones? Yeah, no, I mean, it all started with Spider Man and Batman for me. I got you know, it. and. And Spider-Man, especially because Spider-Man was like, you know, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He was a New Yorker, all the New York stuff. So like, I was like, I love that story. Fantastic Four too. Like anybody who was in New York City and Daredevil and all those things, like just, you know, you felt like, oh my God, they really exist. They're here, right? Like, you know, and I remember then, you know, at the time, you know, it wasn't terrible. Spider-Man show that I think came on ABC or something as a kid that we used to watch. Oh, it was terrible. I remember watching that too. Yeah, and then it was like Spider Man is amazing friends, and you know, and then the Spider Man, Spider Man. Sure. So it was like, it. I mean, again, even just to see the movies now. I remember when we, my wife was pregnant with my daughter, who's now twenty one, and the first X Men came out. And I remember making my wife go to like a midnight screening with me because, and just sitting in the theater and seeing that whole opening with the, you know, with the camp, the concentration, and just going, "Oh my yeah. god, this is like it's happening! Like this yeah. is real!" and like. They finally nailed it, you know, like, so like, you know, look, I always say this, my timing growing up in the comic book world is just perfect. Like I start out in the seventies and like, it's like the business grows while I grow. It's like, I get into my high school, college years and it's like, all of a sudden it's the English invasion. Right. And we get the dark night returns and we get, you know, sort of 
Watchmen and we get, yeah, yeah, you know, you just, yeah, you just get all these amazing, but then Miracle Man's coming out of England and like just this, just amazing growth of comics. And then I sort of get into my twenties and early thirties and the movies start to come out. You're just like, like, so all these things that like, you know, people waited 50 years for sort of all happened like right in a row. So it was just a great time to be a fan, which, you know, I always remind people, like I'm a fan first and foremost. It's like, I'm just like you. Like, I just, I just, those stories inspired me when I was young. Absolutely true. And I want to get to that thread in a second about the fans, but I will say this as well, because like I told you in the emails we were going back and forth and I'm like, Teen Titans, Teen Titans, Teen Titans. And here's why. Because when I was a kid, about four or five, I had an uncle, cool uncle, right? That guy. And sure enough, he had all these comics laying around that were from the 60s, you know, so it was the original Teen Titans. And I'm talking like, you know, Robin, Kid Flash, uh, forgot the other ones, but Aqua Lad, but I think my favorite part about the Teen Titans later I realized is that it was essentially like, let's get the youth involved. Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I grew up with the Marv Wolfman, George Perez run, which to me was so essential. Yeah. It was the new Teen Titans. And I just remember like, you know, Judas Contract blowing my mind, you know, and I was like, I was 12, I think when that came out, 12 or 13. And that so really had a lot to do with my DNA as a writer and those kind of stories. And, you know, I've gotten to know Marv, you know, and, and George a little bit. And some of those stories I still can like, I'm, I, you know, it's always funny. I can look at a cover and just tell you the whole story. Like if I see a cover to a book, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's when they saw robot man, or that's when this <laughs> happened. That's happened. Which is wild that I could still do that. You know, 40 years later. Sure. It's a sixth sense. It's a learned behavior. Yes. And you know, look, you know, everyone's journey to how they become a writer is different. You know, I'm the guy who literally like, you know, <laughs> I, my kids, when they were little, they loved, um, that movie Ratatouille. And I remember the the chef gets in trouble because he says, everyone's a chef, everyone can cook. And everybody's like, oh my God, how do you say that? Listen, everyone has a story to tell. That doesn't mean you're a writer because writing is a craft and writing is learning how to to write. But everyone has a story to tell. And then the difference is, can you tell it? Yes. Oh my God. Let me me, me throw this at you if you don't mind. I've been saying this for a while too because I'm trying to get be better as a storyteller myself because, again, I do think it connects the world in ways that other things can't. But um, where was, was I going with this? Uh, oh, shot. It'll come back to me. Continue. Um, oh, I know what – actually, I do know what I want to talk about. So the Supernatural show, which, if I'm not mistaken, it was like 2005 to recently, right? Right. I, I mean, yes, it's been around that long. I wasn't there all that time. Oh, no, I was of there course for five not. Years. Uh, of course not. But there was one thing I did find that was interesting, and this is kind of where I'm heading with this. There was a supernatural, like crazy supernatural fan community, right? Hundred percent, big giant, uh, the supernatural family, as we call it. Right, and to and I, I want to talk more about that. But the reason I bring this up specifically is because I was fortunate enough to work with a band called uh, My Chemical Romance. And they were pretty big band over at Warner Brothers and in the rest of the world. But their fan base was unbelievable. Still is to this day. So can you talk a little bit, a bit more about the community aspect? Well, it's absolutely amazing. And it's a testament to also Jensen and Jared, who I think just really sort of, you know, early on sort of not only supported that fan base, but were really loyal to it. And, you know, the conventions, I mean, it's the closest thing you're ever going to come to it is Star Trek. You know, my joke all the time is I have to do something else in my life or else when I die, my obituary will be supernatural writer Adam Glass, which, you know, there could be a lot worse things then. Um, But, you know, there was, I I always, it's so interesting because 
I sort of was the second wave of writers that came and the first wave of writers was obviously Eric Kripke and Ben Edlin and Sarah Gamble. Mm. They did such an amazing job. And then sort of we came in and was sort of the second wave and it was me and Andrew Dabb and Jenny Klein and, and Ben was still there and uh, Robbie Thompson and, wow. you know, all that stuff. And like, we were helped to build on it. But like when you came part of it, like, you know, I had no idea. I'd never been part of something like that. I, I funny because people look at my Twitter account and they'd be like, Oh, you have like almost 60,000 followers. And I'm like, all supernatural fans, <laughs> like you know, like like they just are such a loyal group, and you know, it's amazing when you meet people, and they're just like, the show changed my life. The show did this. The show yeah. did that. And you're just like, wow. Like I don't, you know, I I don't know if I'll ever be part of something as amazing and special as that again. I hope, but like it's just a unique sort of thing, and it's a show that just talks to a lot of people and of all different, you know. Uh, races, economical backgrounds. Like I, I always tell this crazy story. I have a cousin down in Georgia and I went down to a family thing down there to see them. And um, he uh, wanted to surprise me. And he, he told me he was going to show me his house. We had a barbecue and he takes me like in like, like deep woods. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, you'll see, take me to a hunting cabin. And we walked in there. And I, when I tell you, it was like right out of like some movie I walked in and all of a sudden these guys are all sitting around and they just, there's guns everywhere. And they literally looked at me and they're like, what's, you know, who's this man? And my cousin's like, this is Adam. And they're like, Adam who? And I'm like going, what the hell, man? Why are you bringing me here? And who are these people? And he turned around and he goes, uh, this is Adam, a cousin, the one I told you was supernatural. And these guys went crazy. They're like supernatural, man. Like, you know, and like we take your picture and hugs. And it was nothing but love. And all of a sudden I'm like, I felt like I was in some weird Fellini film. I was like, what is going on? And, but it went to show you again, like their fans. And like my mom was a giant fan of the show before I even started working. I remember when she called me, it was like in her eyes, I finally made it. I was yeah. on a real show. So yeah, the community is just, it's, it's big. It's yards. I've made friends for life for it. I still talk to a lot of the writers. Part of something like that was really special. Of course it is. You know, and the interesting thing too, is that because these, I know this, the show touched on a lot of themes, right? Like big themes, that's where the connectivity comes in. But it's not the special effects per se, and it's not this and it's not that. It's the larger themes that people can connect to. Yeah, well, it's about family. Look, at the center of it, there's these two brothers who love each other. I right. Mean, absolutely. You know, like I always say this, like, you know, we always say that thing, like, I go to hell and back for you. 99.9% would not do that. They That's all talk. These guys have gone to hell and back for each other. Like, you know, and so it's always about sort of family at the end of the day. And I think that's what makes the show great. And by the way, that emotion and sort of in genre, it was always a reminder that always sort of base everything into relationships and, and all that stuff, because I think that's what really helps a show like that go. And now as we you know, Robbie Thompson's doing the prequel pilot when fingers crossed that goes, did some amazing episodes. So super proud of him and big shout out to Robbie that things work out and they get to keep telling the story. That's it. Right. You <laughs> should keep on. I, I've told people this. I say, oh, I know what I was going to say earlier. I've told people this. Sometimes I say, there's two things you have to do to be a writer. One is you have to tell the story in whatever that means in whatever medium. But I think the harder thing is to find it. That's, and that's where I think that it takes somebody who's like, a, I always say this, it was uh, Keith Richards said it basically, that you got to be a lightning rod for the song that's out there. It's like when I tell actors, you know, who are friends of mine, you know, my kids, both of them are in, in the entertainment business. I'm like, you have all the talent in the world. Now you just need a little luck. And then if that sort of luck shines on you, you better be ready because, you know, to sort of execute. Same thing goes with writing. It's like, you know, I was watching uh, an interview with... Um, 
and I apologize, I'm not remembering her full name. It's three names, but the woman who created uh, the the amazing, uh, not amazing, the marvelous Miss Maislin. She's talking right. about how she, Amy Shannon. I'm I'm gonna mess it up. I'm terrible with names, but she was talking about how like her timing, right? She was at the WB right when it was starting, so she got the Gilmore Girls on, and she's like, and she was at Amazon right when. So, you know, so she can create Mrs. Ma- you know, Mrs. Maisel. It's yeah. like both really great, amazing shows, but also her timing was incredible and she had the right voice and actor. I mean, I always say this, I know so many talented people who don't get those chances, don't get those breaks. And a lot of it's timing. A lot of it's because you can write doesn't mean you have the personality to go out and sell it. I mean, there's just so many things that go into it. Sure. And, you know, uh, and there's also, again, luck does play a part in it. Like, you know, you can hustle, you can do all this, you can do that. But like, you know, I, I always also sort of talk about this all the time. You know, you also have to play the long game. You know, you're writing, you're creating. I have so many stories of things that I did that didn't maybe do what I wanted. But if I look back, it worked for me in other ways. You know, I've written scripts that never sold as a pilot, but maybe got me my next three jobs, you know? So like, you just never know. And I think the biggest thing to take away is like, you know, I always say two things. Writing's a craft, right? And if you're get good enough at it, and if you really learn your craft, maybe if you're lucky, you get to create a little bit of art in here and here and there. But, you know, we're just making craft. You know, it's like build a house. You can sort of add your own sort of thing to give it your, you know, it's what separates great architects. You know, it's like, you know, being able to sort of turn around and put your flavor on it. And that's like, you know, really big and important. And then, you know, the second part of it, writing, you know, is writing. Like, you know, if somebody tells me, oh, I've been working on a script for three years, I'm like, finish that and move on to the next one. Or you're not really a writer. You have to... Again, the difference between writers and non-writers, everyone has a story to tell, is who actually can finish those ideas, who can execute those ideas. And that takes time and that takes patience. But the biggest thing is like, you got to keep writing. Like, you know, like I now at this point in my career, like I still write every day, even if it's for an hour, just uh, thinking of ideas or putting lists together. Like I always constantly have to go on the computer and write because it's just in my soul. It's who I am. Correct. And I have spoken to many, 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 uh, brilliant, uh, actually good friend of mine is showrunner on the Umbrella Academy or at least the major producer or whatever. Um, but he, he mentioned it to me. He basically said that if you, if you're an artist and you stop creating, you die. I know my, my wife's always like, you know, you're going to retire. And I'm like, retire. No, I'm going to probably be on a computer and, you know, yeah. hopefully in my ease and I'm going to write, you know, fade away yeah. and then just drop on my computer. Yeah. Well, you said, I <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, I'm laughing. I'm like, my, my poor kids will come in and find me just like hunched over my computer. <laughs> <laughs> like a skeleton. Fade <laughs> <Eat> away. <laughs> just, <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, you know, that concept of being, I, I call it being possessed because I fortunately or unfortunately have a little bit of artist in me, but I call it being possessed because I can't stop doing this. I've been creative all my life. Yeah. You know? That's yeah, weird. I know. Same. Like, I mean, I, I feel really blessed. Like, I don't really have writer's block. You know, I always feel like there's, I'll never get to every idea I have. But that's all the same thing. It's like, you know, and it's, these are all like, you know, high-end problems at this point, but also figuring out what goes where and how to really execute it or how, like, what's real. And, you know, like, I have ideas that I'm just waiting for the right opportunities for. You know, like, I mean, I did this show that I just did for Netflix. It was an idea I had for a long time. And it was really just about finding the right place. Yeah, in from the cold? Right, yeah, in from the cold. I tried to get that made a couple of times. And then, you know, just the right opportunity in time. And, like, also knowing that, that, you know, some ideas are just about finding the right home for 
Absolutely. And I do want to ask for a second about him for the cold, because what I, what kind of caught my eye was that, um, I'm, I'm an old like John le Carey fan. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I know, um, the title. Well, right. But also too, just the spirit of the thing. I mean, it's like a spy thing. Yeah. Right. And also too, I liked the, it was a woman, a woman's perspective because generally that's not the, the, uh, the role, you know, it's usually a guy that does these kind of things. So I thought that was great. And listen, I think, you know, I always say, what's the familiar fresh idea. And like, I thought taking it from, you know, this single mom and I grew up with a single mom and also just about a woman of a certain age, you know, and her trying to figure out what's next in her life, which is something that's also happening in my life. I'm watching my wife go through that as my children have become old enough. And it's like, you know, women are given, unfortunately, an expiration date, which is completely bullshit. And then, you know, and it's like, no. And then, you know, of course, I took all these things in my life and said, oh, how would that look through the lens of a, you know, a, a spy story? And, you know, you take your personal stuff and you put it in there and, you know, you, you try to make it as real as possible. And, you know, we're just so lucky, you know, we had everything on that project, you know, despite doing it during uh, COVID oh. was really amazing. We shot the show in Madrid during COVID, Wow! but it was an unbelievable experience. And, you know, Margarita Laviva, who was our lead, was just perfectly cast for it. And she was great. And, you know, just so much. And it's like, again, I look at it and anyone who knows me, it's like the Russian, you know, my family was originally from, you know, a mixture of uh, Belarus and from Kiev. And, you know, ah. so they came here a few generations ago. So like, you know, I had a lot of Russian, you know, people in my family and sort of able to play that story out. And, you know, it's like, yeah, like all of it's like the DNA of it. Like when you look at the whole show and step back, it's like, I see every aspect of my life in that show. And, you know, you put that in, you put your heart and your soul into these things and your story and, you know, you put it through a fictional character, but so much of it reflects back on you and your life and your yeah, experience. Totally. This, this term just, this term just came to me. I'm sure it's out there, but it's almost like a meta script, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's kind of like about you and these larger themes of in some weird subconscious Jungian way, you're in there. Your DNA's in that story, right? hundred percent. Yeah. And I mean, I try to do that with everything I write, you know, like even when I was writing Supernatural or I was writing comic books, like I always, I, I write best if I find the emotional hook that goes into it. And sometimes you find the thing that you share with a character. You know, I did a, a thing about a boy for Supernatural and it was all about there's time in Dean's life where we don't realize it, but he went to a boy's home and he had sort of a chance. And I, so we always believed in the show that Sam was the one who could have had the normal life. And, and it was Dean who was always going to be the guy who was sort of riding shotgun with his dad. And I sort of introduced the story where like he actually had a chance of a normal life and chose to give it up at the end for his, uh, for his brother. And it was like a different way. And I always try to do that. I was like, you know, there was another one I did where like we introduced the grandfather and I created this thing called the men of letters. And it was like, I was always trying to think of like, what's the, the alt, you know, sort of story that, you know, um, we didn't expect, and, you know, and, and in both those, it was like, yeah, I took aspects of my life and my experience and sort of put it in there and for, you know, for better or for worse, but, um, it's the way you connect to the characters and the stories and the way you bring your own truth to it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interviews that I did come to think of it with this amazing woman named Robin Kerman, who's an author and she's doing this thing on Amazon, but we had this interesting discussion about when, when she kills a character or like makes a character in pain somehow, she feels bad. You fall in love with things. I mean, you do. There's an ongoing running joke I have with my sister. So anytime I name a character after I kill them, and my sister's like, you need to go to therapy and work this shit. <laughs> it's like, 
And I tell her it's a, it's a compliment. It's homage to you. And it's sort of, it's a, it's a rising joke now. Cause anytime she sees that the character's name is Tasha, she's like, how long before they're dead? Mm, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm available anytime for a price. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I'm hustling you now. Wow. Look at that. I, I have a script too. So here's the next question actually. So, and this was kind of, this is what I'm ultimately fascinated about because this is kind of going back to the narrative storytelling thing. So when you have shows like that, or you have like Cold Case or Criminal Minds or some of these these uh, shows, how do you keep the narrative consistent without influence from other people? Because those big shows, I know, a lot of opinions. Yeah, but I mean, listen, I mean, once you're in the writer's room, I always say that's the safest place in the world because ah. – well, you could sort of, it's a free open place to sort of explore all those two ideas. I mean, Cold Case is a perfect example. I mean, the great thing about Cold Case, where I think why that show works so well was you got to sort of A, pick worlds. So like, you know, we'd literally go in and pitch and be like, hey, I want to do a story about a circus in 1973, set to the music of the doors. Then you'd figure out the story. Right. Or I want to do something about, you know, horse racing and like, you know, so it was always, you know, sort of fun to do those kind of shows. And, and because that show is about sort of finding justice for this person who's been dead for a long time, you're emotionally connected to the story. So I always felt like that was a different procedure. I, I mean, cold case, I wish ran three more years because it was such a great gig and we were such a family and I'm still friends with so many people from that show and same thing with Pro minds, you know, it was like, you got to sort of go in there and, and sort of make, you know, these un- like it's funny. Cause I remember when that show, I was up for that show. I was like, am I going to be able to go home and forget what I heard? Cause my kids were younger at the time. I'm like, do I really want to go in and hear about these terrible, horrible things? Oh, right. And the truth is, I couldn't believe it. I could shut it off the minute I left there. I was like, oh, well, at least that's good. I can compartmentalize those stories, right? So, yeah, it's like all day you're hearing nothing but horrible stuff and you got to go home and have dinner with your kids. And I was like, <laughs> you know, oh, boy, like, what'd you do today at work? Well, you know, we talked to an FBI agent who told us about human trafficking. And it was like, you know. But again, even those stories, like you're trying to find what's the human story, what's the thing we could all relate to, you know, like what's the, and listen, you know, writers either write from their aspirations or from their fears, you know, and it's like, so, you know, like you're always doing that. So, and most of the time it's your fears, right? I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we're all just writing, you know, these stories that either inspire us or scare the shit out of us. Absolutely. What a fantastic, I love these things as I get to be the eternal student. And and that's a beautiful and amazing thing to say. So thank you. And I want to move on to a few things here. Um, how did, here's the, here's a big question. How did you become a, a writer? Where did that come from? Well, you know, funny, if I look back, I guess I was always writing, you know, you don't realize it when you're a kid and you're sort of going through, but like, you know, I was the kid who literally like my, again, I didn't really have a dad. I was sort of, I always joke, I was raised by Hannah and her sisters. I grew up in the Bronx with my, my grandmother and my mom and my aunts. And, you know, they would tell me that I was putting on, you know, plays at four years old and the, in the, you know, to entertain all them and, you know, and I would do all these little bits and, you know, and I think I just grew up because I was a New Yorker. We're also smart ass by nature so you know um, but I started off like I think a lot of people like at first I thought I wanted to act and I was in the theater and I went to school at SUNY Albany for, for at first and then I sort of transferred to Brooklyn College and I was a theater major and then you know I got the bug bite I was you know bug bite listen I got the 
the creative bite, whatever you want to call it. And I turned around and I started, you know, it was a big independent film movement happening in New York and, you know, Nick Gomez and Spike Lee and oh. I just, and Ed Burns. And so I started to take film classes and I started to sort of find other ways to tell the stories. And then I sort of came out here thinking I was going to be a director. And then, you know, I finally had to pay the bills and it started to just naturally move into writing. And at first it was all comedy. And again, I think it was because I was a smart ass and I do like comedy a lot. And then I think by the time I was sort of getting in my late twenties and my early thirties and I had kids, I was sort of changing and who I wanted to be. And I like to say like, you know, Don Rio, who was a mentor used to say, you know, um, comedy's fun, but you don't want to be writing dick jokes at three o'clock in the morning. Just to, <laughs> and that's what you started doing. And I started to resent that. So I started to sort of just evolve and start to write more dramas and, and then that sort of worked its way into sort of the career I have now. But, you know, every step of the way is a journey, man. Like, you know, again, the, the Grateful Day, Dead say, you know, what a long, strange trip it's been. Like, I always say you could only sort of have a North Star. How you're going to get there, whew, you could never guess in a million years. True. Um, by the way, can we just title this podcast uh, Writing Dick Jokes at 3 a.m.? Yeah, exactly. They're adding dick jokes. Three M. Long strange trip of Adam Glass. Yeah, mm. <laughs> my show. <laughs> yeah, even um, yeah, what we were talking about earlier. Look at your journey, brother. I think it's everybody's that. I mean, that's what I try to sort of tell my kids. I'm like, you're you're on this trip, man, and you just you know just have a focus which direction you want to go, but also be open to whichever way it's going to take you because you just don't know, you know. You, you, you'll probably get there one way or another. Like I always say, like set out and have your goals because you'll get further if you have goals and you work towards them. But you know, how you get there, where it turns, what nobody yeah. knows, man. I, when I went through some pretty big trauma, I remember um, I'd, I'd like do something good and people would come to me. They're like, you've turned a corner. And I'm like, thank God I'm done. And then I'll wait, there's another corner. And eventually you kind of do what you need to do. Always, man. Always. And, you know, listen, I mean, it sounds always like such a, you know, um, I don't even know what the word is right now, um, you know, thing to say, but it's like, it does, the world sort of does work itself out. It does push you in the direction that you need to go. And when you look back and you reflect, you say to yourself, okay, um, you know, that's the way I go. But I will say this, look, here's the other side. I've, you know, like, I think what I loved about Hamilton when I saw it was like, I so related to writing myself out of situations. Like I think back and it's like, I've changed my career and my life like three times through writing, like, you know, going out and saying like, you know, example, when I wanted to get in the business, I wrote a script that changed my life. When I wanted to get into drama, I wrote a script that changed my life. You know, when I wanted to get into more, you know, uh, producing and executive producing, I wrote a script that changed my life. Like, you know, like there were times where I turned around and my writing is what changed my life and nothing else. And sort of being dedicated to that. And again, just, you know, learning, learning your craft, you know, like I say this all the time, like there's such a knock on procedural writers, I'll tell you what, man, I learned more from sitting in a procedural room and banging the boards and just. That, like, I'm sorry. What does that mean? I got to back up. Banging the boards, just like learning structure and oh. just sitting there and breaking stories. You know, when we were on cold case and we were on criminal minds and we we're on supernatural, you're doing 22 to 24 episodes a year yeah. and you're just sitting there every day in a room. I'm like, so anytime I do a show, I'm like, give me a couple of procedure writers. Just, I know they could bang the boards and sit there all day long and break story. And after a while it becomes like beautiful mind. Like you just sit there and you could look at a break and know it's exactly what's wrong with it and how to fix it. And that's really a gift that just comes from, you know, just doing it over and over and over I, and i was gonna say um i'm glad you brought this up too because this is one of my favorite memories uh my well, my late wife and i we went to um the brill building 
in New York. And I don't know if yeah. you know about the Brill yeah. Building. Yeah, the music, music building, yeah. Bingo, right. So that's where Neil Diamond, uh, Carol Bayer-Sager, uh, Burt Bacharach, Carol King. And it was really interesting because you can go, you know, this tiny little tour is basically just a hallway. And this tiny little hallway, there are these tiny, tiny shoebox rooms and a piano and a bench. That was wow. it. And you know this, maybe guys like that and Neil Diamond, they'd be like, I need a hit by six. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I mean, again, that's because people turned around and they worked on their craft. And, you know, we listen, the other thing was I was really fortunate because I came at a time where you, the writer, got to produce your own episodes. And so you learned how to be on set. Like really, because, you know, being a good writer doesn't mean you're a good producer or it doesn't mean you could be a good showrunner. You're good with people. Some people are just good writers. And by the way, there's also sort of like I say, it's always like a team, a baseball team. Some people are just utility players. You know, some people like are really good at outlines and people write good scripts. I know people who are what I would call projectors who sort of are really good at pitching. And everyone's different. And what everybody brings to the table is different. And, you know, learning what people's strengths are, you know, there's room for everybody, but very few people have it all. Very few people like you sit there and go, oh, you're the whole package. And when you do find those people, you try to grab on and hold on to them super tight. But um, what's happening now, unfortunately, is because of the lesser orders and because we're shooting overseas a lot, you got writers that are coming up that aren't getting that set experience. So by the time they reach co-EP, EP, they don't have the experience of how to actually physically produce a show. Uh-huh. And I just think they're doing a serious dis- disservice to them because, you know, that's so any show I do, I always try my best to get the writers to be involved in the production. And, and if you can, I mean, there are times obviously it doesn't economically make sense, but, you know, just having that experience is like so great. Sure. Um, there's one thing I, I, I did want to bring up and part of my, my thing here is I, I, you know, do my research, but I also want to talk about kind of the smaller things that at least connect with me. And one of those is the cleaner. It was nice to see addiction actually portrayed with some compassion, it seemed like. And that's super important for me. I've been sober for a very, very long time and it, it was just good to see. I'm, I'm honestly thanking you. You know, it's wild. I come from two addicts. Both my parents, you know, struggled with uh, substance abuse. So, you know, I grew up around it my whole life. And, you know, I'm blessed that I don't have that gene, you know, and that, you know, I, my sister and I both always talk about how lucky we were that that didn't happen to us. But, you know, we saw it firsthand. So, you know, that was really great uh, to be part of that. And look, we also had a great you know, actor, you know, anchoring on Ben Bratt could just take anything and sort of make it, you know, so amazing and interesting. And again, you know, it was sort of ahead of its time and it was on A&E. So a lot of people didn't know about it, but I'm really proud of the work that we did on that show. And, uh, and I thought it was an interesting way to talk about addiction. Yeah. It's always important for, I mean, part of the show, sometimes I'll just talk about that too, as well. It's obviously one of my passion uh, projects. Um, I'm going to wrap this up in a little bit here, but we can keep going. But I have to I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this one up. Tell me about the blue collar TV thing. Well, you know, it's really interesting. And again, like this is one of those things that I think early in my career, I had created a show called All About the Andersons with Anthony oh. Anderson and um, who's such a talented guy and obviously uh, was way ahead of uh, everything. He went on to be the star blackish and, uh, you know, and, and the story with that is like, when I first moved to Los Angeles, um, I went out with a group of friends that I had met and, uh, we had all gone to a club. I don't think I'd been here but a week or two. And, uh, me and this other guy couldn't get in. And we ended up sitting out in the parking lot because neither of us had a car and we had to wait for everybody to be done. And we just started talking and I think we had 40 ounce of beer. And, you know, I was a young guy. I think we smoked a joint and we just sat and talked in the parking lot and talked about our dreams. 
And, uh, and I remember him doing a monologue for me from the great white hope. And I told him I want to be a writer. And that was Anthony Anderson working at Ticketmaster at the time. So, you know, to see his, his ascent and, and see what he went through. So, you know, we, we had teamed up on some stuff, but that show had ended and, you know, I had two babies and I needed to work and Warner brothers. I remember was, I think, uh, I think Michael called me, who at the time was the head of uh, Clemens, uh, one of the heads of comedy over there. And he said, hey, we have this show and did it and all this stuff. And, you know, I remember my wife go, take that job. <laughs> you know, and, and honestly, I took it and I had a lot of respect for those guys. I mean, you know, they had built something, but it really wasn't my, I'd say my vibe, you know, and I remember sort of being in there. And that's also a lesson to learn. Like, don't, you know, like, yes, yeah, sometimes we all have to pay the bills, but like, you know, I remember getting in there and thinking, oh, am I really doing a service for this right. show? Um, and I sort of feel like, so I, my, my reign there was one season and, you know, five months, but I will say like, I remember going down and we were shooting an episode in Athens, Georgia, and it was like the, the Beatles had shown up. It was wild, man, oh, really? around the block. Those people just had such a fan base and, you know, Jeff was a good dude and, you know, nothing but love for those guys, but it was also a lesson for me about like what I want to do. And, and I mean, after that show is honestly where I was like, I'm done sort of doing comedy, like at least this kind of comedy. And I started to make that shift into drama because yeah. I realized that this wasn't for me. And it was a scary time to say and do that. Cause back then it was like, everybody just saw me as a comedy guy. I was like, I have to reinvent myself yeah. and find my happiness in that. Yeah. I, I will say one thing about Larry, cause I, that's not really my, my speed either so much in terms yeah. of comedy, but at my old job at Warner brothers, occasionally, I think he had a comedy record out or Larry, the cable guy did had a comedy record out on the label. And occasionally a celebrity or musician will like pop into the marketing meeting room. It's like super awkward because it's like a hundred dorks in the room. And um, yeah. anyway, he comes in and he killed, <laughs> he destroyed for like five minutes. Comics, man, they are a special breed in themselves. But at the end of the day, like the, you know, I, the people who are really, really good at it and are, are it's, it's amazing to watch. It's, it's jazz. Yeah, when you're watching somebody riff and they're just making it up out of thin air, like that to me is the bravest kind of art you're doing. You're out there with no safety net. When it works, it's it's amazing to see. It is. It is. Um, okay, I got uh, I got a penultimate and then an ultimate question. Here's the penultimate. If you can pull this off, uh, give me the five top films that you love and or top five songs that you love and or combine them two and a half, two and a half. <laughs> well, it's funny because I mean, look, I just went to the 50th anniversary screening of The Godfather. So, you know, that movie, wow. I could probably do every single line from when I saw Coppola speak. Wow. And that was absolutely amazing. And that movie just, I think, is perfect on sure. so many levels. Um, you know, I think of the movies that influenced me. It's that. It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Just absolutely love and total cinephile. And the great news is my son, who's 18, like we go and like, you know, he also loves movies. So being able to sort of share that with Aiden and show him those movies. And it's funny because he's in acting classes now and like the teacher will bring up stuff and he's the only guy in the room who could raise his hand because he's seen everything, you know, and, and, and we're definitely big. And then believe it or not, like my favorite movie is like some movies that like nobody's ever heard of. Like, like I'm such a sucker for like, I love somewhere in time. Well, who's of a re movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like Holy shit! Yes, 
And then Jane Seymour, I'm like, yes. I just love that movie. It's like, I choke up. Literally, my kids laugh because like oh. that movie comes on and I just. The soundtrack's amazing. Oh. Why do I know this? Why do oh, you yeah. know this? John Barry. Yeah, John Barry. And uh, I love the original Rocky. The first Rocky is, is I think, a masterpiece. And everything like that. And then music-wise, like I turn around. Uh, and then I said, oh, earlier and then Raiders, I think, you know, like was a big movie for me. And then and as for music, I'm a giant Black Crows fan. So like I just, me and my wife see them a lot live. Yeah. And, you know, I was lucky because I sort of grew up with my mom had me at 18. So I grew up like pure classic rock as a kid. And then, you know, I was the perfect age and I was in the Bronx. But I'm on like 12, 13 hip hop starts to hit. I'm right there at ground zero. So DJ Herc and hearing all these people. And, you know, so I'm like, as a young kid, I remember seeing L Cool J at 14. Wow. You know, sitting on the hood of a car, you know, like, you know, performing out in front of a record store, like very fortunate to sort of be on the ground floor and see all that stuff and, you know, how hip hop changed the world. So uh, I got nothing for love for beasties and tribe called quest and all that. stuff. I still go. I'm stuck. Yeah. Q-tip. I'm still stuck in the nineties, like music. Like if you go in my car, my kids always laugh because it's all nineties hip hop music. So I'm just the same. Last thing I'll say about that, by the way, is that I saw public enemy in 80, no, 91. It was the Fear of a Black Planet record. Yep. And it was at a 200 seat venue because they were, it was like, they were, it was like a, a one off date. I, it was the craziest show I've ever been to in my life. It was amazing. Yeah. Public Enemy number one. And I remember when they teamed up with Anthrax, you know. Yes, bring the noise. Yeah. My goodness. All right. Here's the final uh, question, the final Jeopardy question I ask every single creator that I know. Yeah. And that is, how do you know when you're done? Done in one way. You mean the sense of like a script? Yes. I'll say that. <laughs> well, hopefully I'm never done. But um, but yes, it's, like, I always joke, you know, thank God for TV that it's a date to shoot it. Because I think <sighs> as writers, we would we just keep messing with it and tinkering with it forever yeah. if we could. So, um, uh, you know, I think it's a catch point too. I think there's definitely work that needs to be done on any script. And then sometimes I think we cross the line and I think we end up hurting the script more than, yeah. you know, not. And then I think, listen, right, I always say there's the script you write, the script you shoot, and the script you edit. Those are three oh. different things, you know, and it's each one's at its own place, its own level. Oh, so man. sometimes I think, you know, you go into it and you're like, okay, like this is good enough to get to the next level. And then we'll figure out and that level and then we'll figure out an editing and then we'll figure yeah. out all that. So it's tough. It's tough I, to let go sometimes, you know. That, exactly. That is the question. It's all about release. It's all about being present enough to release. Yeah. And also sort of trusting in your skill set and trusting in the people around you that you can execute that. Correct. Correct. Well, uh, I will say, uh, uh, thank you so much for doing this. My God, my God, really great to talk to you. I always learn so much from artists like yourself and writers, especially. So um, I've had a great time. Me too. And, And listen, you know, again, I hope everything I said today, I hope it aspires some writers and that, you know, I always say this writers have to take care of each other because no one else cares about us. So, and let's look out for each other and let's, you know, uh, fight the good fight. And, you know, it's, again, I think we're all craftspeople and, you know, just my only advice would just keep learning your craft and believe in it and go out there. And, you know, we live in a wonderful time where we're hearing stories and diverse stories and stories by people that have been marginalized for so long. And that's such an amazing thing. And also the world's becoming more international, which is amazing. You know, I remember seeing this great quote um, or interview, I think it was uh, on silent film stars. And then it was Buster Keaton who said something really amazing. He said, you know, when film went from 
um, silent to speaking. He said, everyone thought, you know, we were upset because we couldn't make the transition. And he goes, the truth is what a lot of us were upset about was we finally, for the first time in the history of man, had this international language called pantomime. And he said, you know, we could all speak to each other. It didn't matter if a, sh- if a movie was from Russia or it was from Italy or anything like that. Because of pantomime, we could all understand. And he goes, and once we started talking, we all got siloed into these different places where these we couldn't share those stories anymore. And I think what you're seeing now is that being sort of reversed. And now look at all these amazing international stories that are coming through. Like my mom, you know, could watch you know, um, a show that has subtitles and not willing to accept that. And these great stories that are coming out of all these different countries. So, you know, it's a real opportunity, a chance, because no longer is it just America telling the story, the world is telling their stories. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much. I've already said, thank you. You've been a fantastic interview. Um, and again, I learned so much from every time I do these. So it's been fantastic. Uh, thank you, Adam. Say goodbye, Adam. <laughs> goodbye, Adam. My goodness. <laughs> 